response about it's in the news now, of course, abortions. Um, what was that response uh, um, all about, and, and what was the overall approach? And there's a point where various Sodoma were being asked about it. Uh, my sense is that overall, the American school, meaning Moshe Feinstein, were more severe, more stringent on the subject than the Israelis, and Weinberg would be closer the Israelis in this regard. Uh, and the kind of questions came up whether saving life of the mother, well, does that include psycho- psychiatric distress? Can we say, well, wouldn't be in danger of uh, doing something to herself? Would that count as a halachic, halachically acceptable? And again, he analyzed the subject matter. And, uh, and his conclusions were? Uh, he was more, again, more open than Moshe. Okay. When you go through the response, you see so many different types of rabbis, personalities coming to him with, with questions. Um, what attracted all of the, these different types of rabbinical figures to go to Rav Weinberg for their questions? One dull point is that in those days people wrote letters. There was no internet. Phones didn't work the way they do today. So people... And widely, they would ask somebody higher up in the hierarchy if they needed advice. So uh, that was one reason that it was in demand. There were people who were students. And there were people who maintained a very close relationship even in later years. Uh, there was a man named Shmuel Atlas studied in Berlin. He ended up uh, teaching in a reform seminary in New York, JIR, taught Talmud. He also did important work in history of philosophy, 18th century uh, Solomon Maimon. And they had a very active correspondence uh, Despite the fact that Atlas was religiously at that point far removed from Rachel Weinberg. Uh, again, it's true about other Gdolim as well. You, you think the Chazanish is not being the most lenient person in the world, but there are also people that he influenced who were very far from total mitzvot. And when that was welcome in his home and he uh, treated them well, Weinberg was really, he was very isolated at that point. And he wrote about personal feelings. 
uh, Afghanistan in the later years for the Israeli rabbinates, which was somebody who was encountered. And again, I think that at that period of the Israeli rabbinate, there was much more consultation and contact than there might be today. Uh, of Herzog was a chief rabbi. And Friday morning, there was a session in his home with various major Rashi Shiva, Solomon Meltzer, and the like, which ostensibly they were studying Talmud. I'm sure they did study Talmud. There was also a forum where they were able to converse about matters that were important to them. They were much more open in that regard. We had uh, interviewed a couple weeks ago your your colleague and I assume friend, uh, Rabbi Jeffrey Sachs, who you worked together with on on some of the Agno projects. Um, What was the connection between Rabbi Weinberg and Nobel laureate Shai Agno? He was Mr. Kiddushin for me, marriage. But there's a story behind that. Okay. Uh, Agnon had gone to Germany around 1913 or so. Shokin, his editor, thought that he would become a more a greater world writer if he had that additional experience. Uh, he stayed there for about 12 years. Uh, during that period, Agnon was not practicing orthodoxy. I think both Roy Sachs and I agree our instinct is he was not anti. Uh, but that you can infer really based on Agnon's characters. And, you know, Agnon was a fiction writer, so you can't be 100% sure about these things. But it seems that uh, the people, his narrators, uh, our people just drifted away rather than it's not clear exactly what brought him back, other than that his house burnt down and in Germany and he felt that that was a sign to get back to Israel and, and then he, he was already the person we knew later on. So he was not uh, practicing orthodoxy. The woman who became his wife grew up in a very vigorous Orthodox home, but she turned away. And she did not return when he did. And of the kids, the daughter was like Agnon and the son like his, his mother. So uh, Mr. Marx, the father-in-law, objected to the shidduch. And he was a wealthy man. So Rabbanim didn't want to start up with him. Uh, the couple went to Michael Weinberg. And at least what these reporters have said, he said, why should I not marry them? They don't, they don't need parental consent. And apart from that, I don't really 
know what these people are up to, but if I refuse to marry them Jewishly, they may live together. Why, why should I do this? So he, he arranged the wedding. A few years later, he met Mr. Marx. And Mr. Marx said, you know, we go back together. You arranged a wedding for my daughter. And Weinberg said, you're right. And Marx said to him, you know, I objected very strenuously to that because, you know, the the guy was a, a Polish Jew. It wasn't even from. And, uh, but now a few years have passed. And it turns out that he he is from and he, he is what he uh, the kind of person that I would want to have as a as a son-in-law. Uh, and I appreciate that you did this, and I want to give you a token of. Weinberg said no, and he said, "But I must because you did do it was a service." I said no. In that case, let me give you money to contribute to charity. And Weinberg said, if you insist, you give the money to charity in my name. If you want to honor me that way. And that's what happened. When the interview was over, a student was with Weinberg and he said, why did you refuse to take money for charity? And Weinberg said, look, this may be a pillar of German orthodoxy, maybe completely committed to orthodoxy. I suspect in his mind, I'm an Osuda. I'm an immigrant. And you know how East European Jews are. You give them money for charity, and the charity ends up being number one in the charity list. So I did not want him to have any question at all about that, that exchange. Aside from the response, and you alluded to, to articles, uh, sir. What what are the um, writings of the Lifrakim and the Mechkarim Batalmud that Rabbi Weinberg wrote? And are those studied widely today? Mechkarim Batalmud is a volume within. Go through the four volumes, they're organized. Lifrakim was not a Talmudic work. It was published uh, around 1936 in Germany. Uh, the truth is the one piece of writing that I did in the Weinberg was on the Frakim. Uh, the practice in Hildesheim, or at least during the Weinberg's time was that at the beginning of the term, he would give a general lecture, which would not be technically Talmudic, it would be more general. One of those lectures was about how academic Talmud, or what you would call philology, would relate to Yeshiva Talmud, what he called Pilpul. 
and why both of them are necessary and why a student in Hildesheimer does not have to feel inferior because in addition to doing pilpul, doing yeshiva learning at the highest level, we also are aware that the Talmud is an ancient book and like other ancient books, it requires a certain kind of historical treatment. So I translated that into English and uh, published in tradition. There is a German version which Mark Shapiro turned up in a newspaper. The newspaper outside of Germany, I believe, where they reported that Weinberg gave the inaugural lecture and they, uh, they presented a version. Uh, the Fakim also contained discussions about God that I might consider more sermonic. Uh, the passage that I had forgotten about, but when I went through Mark Shapiro's book again, in honor of my being with you, uh, Shapiro mentions a lecture in Lutrakim, in which the Weinberg excoriates in the strongest possible language the philosophical or scientific value of racial theory. And I remember the passage more or less. I didn't remember the context. And Shapiro says, you know, no matter how much Weinberg wants to live in peace with the German government, and there were people in that world who hoped that Hitler would be, you know, be like the Tsar, they can, you know, garden variety anti-Semite. Mm-hmm. I recall when I was a child, I heard people telling me that. Some German Jews in the third, in the early 30s said, you know, when you cook soup, it's very hot. But when it reaches the table, you let it cool off a little bit. So there were attempts to communicate with it. Tell them, you know, we have a lot in common. You're, you're against communism. You're against Bolshevism. Don't you know that traditional religion is the greatest bulwark against communism? Uh, you know, I don't think it cut very much uh, mustard with Hitler, but assuming that he read it, got to him. So uh, there, uh, it's still when it came to discussing. Jewish theology, discussing truth. Apparently, he was willing to say some very sharp things in a full awareness that it's conceivable that the government, the government did have censorship, that they did have, and Lutrakim did have to go through somebody in the government who read Hebrew and uh, uh, that is, I think, why he published those pieces there. And I, maybe 
from an educational point of view, having books out there, having things that German Jews could read, that those who read Hebrew could read, was important. Uh, there was a lot of Jewish scholarship in Nazi Germany. And people who uh, uh, did their best to give teach adult education, people like uh, Martin Buber, who really waited until the last possible minute to leave, either because he felt responsibility for German jewelry, and or because his spoken Hebrew was not that good at that point, and he didn't know whether uh, where he would fit at Hebrew was not clear. It was a problem in getting him to Hebrew. Uh, people like, like Heschel may not have a choice. They, they were uh, in several years where they were, uh, they were teaching adult education, where they, uh, again, eventually Heschel was able to get out to England and from England to the United States. So there was a lot of activity at that point, uh, generally, uh, Modi Rabi or Wurzberger, who was a student of Alzheimer, and walked the streets of Berlin the day after Kristallnacht, was afraid to go back to the dormitory, he didn't know what was going on there. Uh, he said to me, you know, if not for the destruction, German orthodoxy was poised to take off and to do some very interesting things. If they had, uh, you know, if they had been active, a lot of the people who emigrated might have uh, ended up making their careers there. What was um, Rabbi Warmberg's approach to the state of Israel? And specifically, how did he respond to Ben-Gurion's question that was sent out to the wise people of Israel uh, regarding who was a Jew? Overall, he was pro-Zionist. In a way that anti-Zionists were not. Letters that he wrote more or less reflected that. Uh, when he was approached, I don't recall that his response was particularly exciting. I mean, the people were Orthodox, responded from an Orthodox point of view. And that was uh, about it. And I imagine that's what Nguyen expected. It may very well be that Ben-Gurion did not want to have to get into arguments about it. So when the question of Jewish identity came up, he punted. He said, I'll point the most respected people in the world, and they'll write. And uh, they wrote back to him. The book was published, and that was the end of it. Adnan wrote very briefly Adnan, if I remember correctly, it was two lines. Nimna Nuchiel Shlomeimune Yisrael. I am a devout Jew. And whatever devout Judaism says in the subject is good enough for me. 
didn't get involved at all. I don't remember that Weinberg said something particularly sharp. Or, uh... Why should young people today, aside from the, the, the scholarship and the Torah value of the response, why should, they, why should young people study the writings and life of Rabbi Weinberg? What, what, why is that important, if you think it is important? We take some of the more homiletic works. Some are just good. They don't age. I'll mention one comment that uh, lodged in me. Gamara uh, says that uh, if the law is that a slave whose master knocks out a tooth or an eye, that slave goes free. Kalbachomet, even how much more so that suffering is a good thing, that suffering elevates you. So Weinberg asked, Why does the Gemara say this? After all, in the Gemara and Gittin, we are told that not every slave wants to be free. Now, at a shot level, I can argue with Weinberg. I can say that the view that he's quoting is one channel in among a variety of opinions. But he asked the question, after all, there are slaves who don't want to be free. And the psychology of it is understandable. Not every slave wants to be free. And his answer was, it's true. Not every slave wants to be free. But if a man is a slave and his master knocks out a tooth, if he suffers physically from slavery, even the most abject slave at that point wants freedom. It's an interesting comment, and it's just as true today as it might have been in 1930. Uh, what he wrote about the history of Mosur, I think is important if you want to know different views about Mosur, at least about Slobodka Mosur, which is what he was primarily concerned about. Uh, it does matter to us today if, if most of it is a live option, then we want to know what people think about it at that time. People were educated and people were capable of distancing themselves a little bit, writing a slightly more objective term. In terms of Psak, if you're interested in halachic rulings, there's still somebody who was part of that world if you're a student of halacha. Uh, and I, I wrote an abortion way, way back. I remember finishing rough draft of the article uh, during the time that Jimmy Carter was giving his acceptance speech for the first nomination. 
I remember writing that long piece, and Chaim Weinberg was one of the major people in that discussion. Uh, you tell me you want what's, what a post can said yesterday, he's not there anymore, but in the halachic world, we do want to study important figures in the past. In Talmud, uh, I'll tell you when I uh, look at Babakama, it comes up in the Yeshiva curriculum. I do take Yisraelish off the shelf and I look at it and I reread that uh, passage. Whether or not, I don't know how many Yeshiva people are run to it right away, even know about it right now. And even in terms of strictly halachic writings, there are things that he says that are as inspiring today as they were then. I mean, one example in passing. There's uh, a view of Rashba that we don't make a bracha on mitzvot between man and man. Because, as Rashba, to say, God commanded us, and that's why we're doing it, but regarding other human beings, there's another reason we're doing it. Michael Weinberg uh, asked the question about Shalachmanis. Why don't we make a bracha on Shalachmanis? And various answers have been given to that question, but he says we don't do that because Shalachmanis is an act of friendship. And if you're saying, well, I'm doing this because God commanded me to do it, then you're diminishing that element of friendship. Again, it's a uh, two-page discussion, but it's something that's worth reading. But those are justifications for Talmud Torah in general. Uh, clearly, within Talmud Torah, in the real world, there are people who are in and people who are not so in, and people who, are, who remain relevant and people who are less relevant. And that leads to the last point that, in part, the combination that he made of academic scholarship and Londus isn't still is not that common today. Many people try to do it with various degrees of success. And regarding matters of that sort, it's not the information that you want. It's really the how and not just the what. Uh, let me quote somebody who studied in Slobodka and went in a somewhat different direction of Hortner. Uh, there's a line in Hortner. Hortner asks, why is it that the Gemara says that the Baal Halacha is called the Mash'ein Lechem, the staff of bread, and the uh, Baal Agada, the theologian, is the uh, Mash'ein Mayim, the source of water. Uh, what a 
playing around with the pasuk and you're taking we're here, we're there, and you're trying to make a sermon out of it. What, what does it really mean? And Putner's answer was that halacha and agada are very different in the way we study them. In halacha, you're talking about truth. Either this is true or it's not true. And once you know what's right or what's wrong, is this permissible, is it not permissible, you have your information. So there, it's like bread. When it comes to eating, the halachic measurement of eating is objective. The size of an olive, if you want to be out, say, you want to perform strict mitzvah. And you put it, say, slightly larger measure. But everybody has the same measurement. doesn't matter whether you are a, a one-year-old, one-year-old baby or old Malachabashan, giant. When it comes to water, the measurements are different. And you kept, we talk, you fill your cheek, and there we know that the the cheek of a one-day-old baby is generally a lot smaller than that of what the Putin derives from that is that in the study of halacha, one size fits all. In thought, in what you might call personal style or who you are, everybody has a different measure. And that's why it's important to learn from many people. Now, you could say that the same thing is true in halacha. That a lot of what we do in halacha is not simply reading Shulchan Aruch and finding out what's permissible, what's not permissible. It also builds a personality. And there's a difference. When you learn from different teachers, you end up being a different person because you have that mixture of influences. But people may be attracted to Michael Weinberg because he was an unusual personality. You want to make a short list of people. I mean, I wrote about him because I thought that his combination of of Lundus and uh, philology was important. I knew other people who do it, but not anybody else with the same degree of piety, not anybody else with the the same degree of mixture, with the same kind of dialectic going on. I wanted to be exposed to that. I wanted to live with that for the amount of time that it took me to do the translation and uh, the amount of time that it takes me to do the reading. You want to live with that. And there, I think there are a lot of people who are... uh, who want to be attracted to that, who want to experience that. Well, we could probably go on and on. This has been fascinating. Um, we urge all our listeners and viewers to um, look up Professor Carmi, Rabbi Carmi's works on not just um, Phil Yaakov Weinberg, but um, 
his many other works. And um, again, thank you so much. We appreciate your time. Thank you. Enjoyed it very much. Thank you. I uh, hope that the audience would soon.